Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are coming to you from our, our, our New York studio's headquarters. We've actually got a, a podcast studio here in our in our expanded office. I'm here with my co-host, David Tainer. Hey, good morning, Josh. Good morning. How are you doing? We're actually recording we're recording this episode on Sunday, which is a bit, uh, bit new for us. And we have a really special guest who would be a special guest at any time, but uh, particularly for the big transition that is underway in the Trump National Security Council, which is, that's a terrifying thing to even, even the phrase is kind of terrifying to say that. Uh, But we're here with Steve Clemens, and Steve Clemens is editor-at-large at at The Atlantic magazine. Uh, But beyond that, Steve, we've, we've, We've been, you know, we have been friends for like twenty years. I could think like nineteen, more like thirty. No, it's it's a a long time. I was thinking because I think we met in nineteen ninety nine when I moved down to DC. So it's coming up on twenty years. I Um, tried to hire you. You did. You did. Failed. Failed. And but we've but we've but we've worked on various uh, on 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 various projects ever since. And um, so we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about well. We're going to talk about John Bolton because uh, H.R. McMaster. Uh, uh, I guess he had that they did that what they call a clap out on. I think it was on Friday. He's well, out, right? He's out, and they little like everybody kind of stood outside the West Wing and gave it looked, him. A, it looked like a parade almost. Well, it was weird because <laughs> it's but it level. doesn't count as the military parade that Donald <laughs> Trump wants. Right, True. right, True. right. Well, it, it when I saw that it was it was almost kind of it was almost kind of weird because at a certain point. You say like HR McMaster is great, but everybody is there saying, "What the fuck with John Bolton, man? This is terrible." So it's a, it's almost like an anti John Bolton. Maybe they'll have a clap in for John Bolton. I mean, all right, we got to we'll talk see about who shows that. up for that. But but before we do, and 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 as usual, everybody's sitting here drinking fantastic cold brew iced coffee because because and. It, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you this, David. Born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx, Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew. But you can have it delivered to your door, no matter where you live. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press, no mess, no baristas. You save money too. You get 36 cups of gourmet cold brew for only 30 bucks. That's less than a buck a cup, and shipping's free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. I'm I getting th- good at that script. I, that is good. I think we literally cannot podcast without Grady's. Well, you know, it's it's it's. I I believe it so deeply. Like I, I barely even need the script. <laughs> yeah. I would just say I did I not would, know this was your just, sponsor, but just I'm from loving the heart. what I'm having right it is, now. It's, it's really great. It's great. You know, like like I've said a few times, to people th- that. You know, in the future on the Josh Marshall podcast, I mean, anybody who 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 becomes one of our sponsors, you have to go out and purchase their thing and whatever, because that's, you know, that's just great. And it's supporting our podcast and and it's supporting our sponsors. But really, I've been drinking this stuff for it must be at least three or four years. I don't I don't know. I don't know exactly exactly how long but it's really good stuff you should give it a try even even beyond uh there being there being our sponsors so steve clements thank you for joining us here in our in our new york uh podcast studio so as 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 we were just saying you and i have known each other for uh just about 20 years and we are very close friends and we've we've uh worked on various little projects together formal and informal over the years and you are well this is this is one of the things Steve Clements you you've probably seen for listeners you've probably I'm sure you have seen Steve 
on cable TV all the time, going back many years, usually talking about various foreign policy issues. But Steve is one of the most connected people in Washington, D.C., especially in the foreign policy circles part of, of, of Washington, D.C. And the thing is about Steve is that usually there's a Venn diagram uh, that exists of people who are very connected in D.C. And so there's one block or circle. And then there's another block or circle um, of wait, I'm trying to think how to connect, how to how to make this Venn diagram work. There's the there is the very connected in D.C. circle, and then there is the douchebag circle, <laughs> and and there is a heavy that's heavy where I am. heavy. No, no, no. There is a there is an almost total overlap between these two yes. things. But what makes Steve so special is that he's not part of that overlap. He's part of the very connected in 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 D.C., but not part of the of the douchebag. Class. Uh, class. Um, and there's many reasons that is the case, but the big reason is unlike so many people in D.C., Steve thinks deeply and cares deeply about the core issue that he is about, which, again, Steve is is kind of a renaissance man and involved and thinks about a lot of things, but foreign policy mm-hmm. and the big picture about the United States role in the world and creating a a more peaceful and just world as opposed to a more barbaric and violent and unjust world that is that is kind of Steve's ultimate thing and um I'll I'll say one more thing about Steve before we get into this you know one of the things when when you and I were having whatever conversations, you know, a decade or two ago, you talk a lot about world systems or state systems that are high fear or high trust. Right. And the way these things build on each other. You go, you start going in whichever direction the global system relationship between states is going it gets easier and easier to go further in that direction as you as you increase the the role of fear and uncertainty between states or relative trust so any, anyway let me just introduce steve clements well thank you for that Josh. welcome that, to the show I, and and i uh, well, thank you, and and I also look at you as not being in the douchebag circle either in new york thank or you. here and i thank love you. the coffee i i'm so happy you mentioned some of the thinking that you and I and others have done about high trust versus high fear globalization, it's an important distinction. And I know it's very wonky for a podcast, but it is essential that people understand what has happened, that essentially during Bill Clinton's time, when the IT world was booming, when you had greater connectivity and connection between people and countries and non-state actors all over the world, there was a new platform that was being created, and ideas and people and money and institutions were traveling more frictionlessly around the world. That's what I call high-trust globalization. It was higher and higher trust. Now, maybe that was naive at the time, but what has happened is that connectivity has not disappeared, but what we now have is a high fear globalization. Walls are coming back. Nations are coming back. Distrust is coming back. Everything is moving more, uh, uh, is, a, is a more labored move across. We have a principled class that can you know, skate across the top of it, but everyone else is basically trapped in circumstances. And that is a messy, nasty form of globalization that I feel like we've been moving into well before Donald Trump, but Donald Trump has exacerbated it. So I really appreciate you making that conceptual distinction about the time we're in because if if you if you buy that notion it's very hard to flip a switch and bounce back because trust has been so undermined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where we are today. And that's when you see things like H.R. McMaster getting a clap out and John Bolton getting a clap in. The consequences are staggering. This is a punctuation point that makes my point that John Bolton is going to be one of the great divas of, of a high fear world. Mm-hmm. So let's, okay, so let, let's, let's, let's dig into this. That, that um, one, of the things I, the, one of the things that we want to talk about is there was a big uh, public controversy, public fight, uh, almost like I guess a dozen years ago now, almost exactly maybe maybe two thousand five, two thousand six, when when uh, President Bush, George W. Bush, 
wanted to make John Bolton the ambassador to the United Nations. And that this is this is 2005. This is when the Iraq War has already turned pretty right. bad and mm-hmm. was and was still getting worse. So uh, it's not 2002, 2003. It's it's mm-hmm. a little a little deeper into the Bush years. And but George Bush had all also beaten John Kerry, right? So so exactly. you had After that election the the 2005. So you beat him in 2004. Bush was coming back in 2005, getting a new cast of characters in play. And at that time, and I think I ran a piece of this on TPM, if I may recall, it was on the Washington Note. Washington Note was my blog. You helped me launch it. Thank you. But but I did so much with TPM as a uh, an outside editor for you as well. But I gave George W. Bush credit for a speech that I think he gave in Brussels after that election, after he'd beaten John Kerry, for saying something along the lines that we needed to get out of this unilateral moment, that we needed to revitalize and refresh our relationships around the world. And I applauded that because I thought that was the right impulse that the world needed at that time. I got a huge pile of hate mail from people who thought I was naive about Bush. And they were right because the next thing he did was nominate George, uh, John Bolton to serve as ambassador to the United Nations, and that precipitated a 21-month battle uh, that I was at virtually every day for those 21 months until he got a recess appointment. So basically, and, that 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 he and Bush lost the fight to have him confirmed by the Senate, and the key yes, thing Dick Cheney would say, "Big time loss." Y- yes, exactly. But th- but they waited and kind of snuck him in as a recess appointment. Right. So he was he was there, but he did not get the public confirmation, both literal and figurative, that he would have gotten if he would have won confirmation. But yeah, but let's transport ourselves back to that time for a moment. George Bush had beaten John Kerry, who was a Republican in the White House. Republicans control the Senate. Republicans control the House. Sound familiar? It was a familiar time. And it was a time when Vice President Biden, whom I'm a great fan of, as you know, was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and made a statement once about John Bolton to me saying, uh, uh, I wish we could help you, Steve, and we will try and help you. We don't like him, but he's an obscure bureaucrat going for a job no one cares about. The Democrats themselves did not think this was a winnable battle on John Bolton. And what I was sure of, given my uh, political ambidextrousness, uh, is that many of my Republican friends were very worried about John Bolton and disgusted by his brand of pugnacious nationalism that they saw flew such in the face of what the Republicans felt they owned was a principled American internationalism in the world and engagement in the world, the Brent Scowcroft type of engagement in the world. And I felt at that time that the Republicans could be split, that this could become a wedge issue. And it was actually, I mean, I think you beat, you showed how to use a blog at that time on Social Security and Trent Lott, and you helped me show how to use a blog to get the first impact on a serious policy decision in international affairs. This is why the Washington note became well known at that time was by making the John Bolton issue such a wedge issue among Republicans. So let's, okay, so let's talk about that because even at the time, what you're talking about there is that there is or was at the time a still a uh, conservative, perhaps hawkish, but basically realist part of the Republican for- foreign policy establishment in Washington that uh, you mentioned Brent Scrocroft, right. who was national security advisor for the first President Bush and also for President Ford way back in, right. in, in the 1970s. And at the time, you still had James Baker, who was, who was President Bush's uh, Secretary of State, also worked for Reagan, et cetera, et cetera. At the time, you still had a number of Republicans in the Senate who, you know, supported the Gulf War, but were really more from that sort of realist strain of, of, of the Republican foreign policy establishment. And the key was, when you talk about splitting the GOP, it was really splitting that group of Republicans from the more uh, neocon, the people who kind of brought us the Iraq War, right? That group, and now, but and the and the key is that that uh, realist kind of old school Republican force, foreign policy establishment in the last decade. I mean, it almost doesn't exist anymore. No, in, term, in yeah, terms of right. certainly in terms of elected office, right? You still have. Um, uh, 
Scowcroft and Baker and, and a lot of these people, I guess Powell, a lot of these people out there. But like, I, it would be very hard for me to think of anybody in the Senate now who's from that, but who's from that world. But let's talk about what is the problem with what does John Bolton represent in foreign policy terms? John Bolton represents a very, very pure distillation of turbocharged pugnacious nationalism. And and there that, that pugnacious nationalism has always been in the American political sphere, but not in the um, center. Not it, it's been at the fringe. Bolton was an was a lawyer for Jesse Helms. He has long been uh, associated with the American Enterprise Institute, and he's had people at AEI that have different views. A lot of people looked at John Bolton as a neoconservative, which he he was not and is not. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about Bolton. Um, he has great disregard for and and lack of trust for international institutions. Uh, of course, during that battle, there was a. Uh, Citizens for Global Solutions tape that had appeared where John Bolton had said, this is before the 9-11 disaster, uh, unfortunately, but he said, you know, if you took nine floors out of the United Nations, no one would care. The United Nations only matters if the United States is in it. It does what the U.S. wants. And so he represents a kind of hyper, I, I don't even call it a hyper realism, but a hyper nationalism that that others have occasionally used. Now, I don't want to go so far as calling Bolton himself a racist. I won't do that. Um, he is, for instance, uh, on, on other fronts, I know he's very uh, pro-gay marriage. He's got some progressive thoughts in there. But there are people like Pamela Geller uh, and and uh, 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 others who have allied themselves with Bolton. He has written forwards for their books. Uh, Frank Gaffney uh, from this the- This uh, is the general kind yeah. of Islamophobic- The Islamophobic clash crowd. Of, clash of civilizations. Right. So as world. Bolton was swimming and finding his place in the world, a lot of the places he has gravitated to had been uh, the parts that have been part of Islamic phobic, you know, hives of activity. Yep, yep. And and that's also part of what it is. But the thing that I had a hard time with John Bolton, I, I knew a former aide of his and talked with him for years before this got going. The UN I followed thing. Right. Yeah, before the UN thing. I knew I, I Bolton really came on my screen when he was an undersecretary of state for international security and arms control. And under when he Bush. was in that role, under Bush, right. and when he was in that role, and I'd heard of him and seen his writing before, and it was, you know, it's all very consistent, but he had said some pretty outrageous things about North Korea at that time, at a point when Bush and Powell were considering possibly finding a way to kind of deal with North Korea, John Bolton went public and kind of undermined it. Right, And right. so was basically undermining his own bosses. Right. Right. And and you began realizing John Bolton operates and plays to a different drummer. And, and really, Richard Armitage, who was then Deputy Secretary of State, and Colin Powell, who was Secretary of State, they say they had to put him in a box and control Bolton, but I don't think they ever really did. And you had a case where some of John Bolton, I mean, the thing that is also misunderstood about John Bolton, people think that he's behaviorally dysfunctional and he can't, he, it, that's absolutely untrue. He is a suave, sophisticated, smart player. So all these stories about him up. like, 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 like blowing up at people and that's a and tactic being, and being temperamentally yes, sort the, of the yeah. temperamental tantrums that he throws right. are brilliant tactics designed entirely to get what he wants and to achieve what he wants but what he so was able not, to he's do not temperamentally a hothead he had real partners in the bush white house the george w bush white house like david addington who was a national security advisor under uh under cheney right. uh, david wormser who was also in the cheney wing of the nsc establishment and these people were loyal just to cheney to to, to cheney they did not have a cross-reporting relationship with to President Bush. That's something that people don't understand. You know, decision making in White Houses is is a, a weird Politburo game, but it's important to look at. When Obama came in, uh, Tony Blinken and I talked about this a number of times because he was assigned at that time to Biden. But they had co-reporting relationships both to Obama and to Biden, so that you didn't get a hive that was siloed off, as were some of Cheney's people. Right. But it was that wing, the David Addington wing 
uh, that John Bolton was allied with. And what began to happen, and which was so disconcerting, what we know Bolton did is he would read raw intelligence, intelligence that had not been filtered through or processed through uh, our many intelligence uh, agencies and departments so that you can come to a collective assessment on key intelligence. He was taking stuff off the field, off machines, had a machine uh, put very close to him, would access this material, and then would act on this raw intelligence and bring it to other partners and then begin doing it. So Bolton was starting out with a bias in the decision making. And you made it in the room if you supported the bias, and he went to war with you if you were not. Right. Uh, there was a guy who was one of the country's best chemical weapons experts, Rex on you, um, who's a really, really outstanding guy. Later was a Susan Rice uh, uh, deputy in the National Security Council, but he also worked for Chuck Hagel, worked for the State Department. And he's the guy John Bolton ran out of the uh, uh, Intelligence and Research Division of State and, and did so the, in the such an abusive way. That's right. part of the State Department. Part of State Department. And, and he ran Rexon uh, out of the department in a way that so offended people who were Republican conservative stalwarts in the department like Carl Ford, that Carl Ford became probably the biggest thorn in the side in the testimony around John Bolton's uh, confirmation, which Carl Ford decided to put his testimony public rather than off uh, right. secret right, 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 because right. of these behavioral things that Bolton did. So let me ask you this. It's, it, when we were talking before about, you know, it, during and after the Iraq War, uh, neocon in sort of the public language became just a word for sort of like ultra hawk even though that's there, mis- that's that's a mis- exactly. misstatement of what neoconservatism so here's is. the thing it's it seemed is it accurate to say with john bolton i think i think the world view is with someone like bolton that the world is governed purely by force and all the stuff about diplomacy and, you know, kind of international agreements and and international law, that is at best drapery around force. And one country has to be the one with all the force and, and they call the shots and that being the United States. And that that is, that is sort of the, the total worldview that someone like Bolton operates under. And it is a worldview in which you are either dominating or dominated, and that there's no real middle ground between the two. And I think many of our our listeners will realize that even though he's not someone who has an articulated ideology as such, that is definitely Donald Trump's personality. Mm -hmm. That's how he sees the world, not just abroad in foreign affairs, but in in every relationship that you are either you are either lording it over, you're being lorded over. And there's no there aren't relationships of relative equality. It's a king of the hill game. Uh, I think that's a very good distillation of John Bolton. I think a shorter form distillation for those familiar with Walter Russell Mead's book, Special Providence, where he would talk about four typologies, Wilsonianism, Jeffersonianism, Jacksonianism, and Hamiltonianism. He would call Bolton and Trump a kind of Jacksonian figure that had no interest in building institutions or nation building abroad. But if a nation threatened us, clobber it, clobber it, demolish it, beat it, subjugate it, and come back home. And and that is uh, that is a rising temperament in the United States. So so John Bolton has gone from fringe to something where at least those people who are supporting Donald Trump that 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 I don't think Donald Trump really gets what he is in terms of a Trump doctrine. You know, in many ways, despite the fears I have of him becoming personally outraged and doing something crazy in North Korea or somewhere there, he's actually much more cautious and isolationist than than Barack Obama was. And Obama was a pretty strategically cautious guy. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton was a much more interventionist. So right, right. so if you were to put the three of them on a, on a line, uh, Hillary would be on one end, Obama would be in the middle, and Trump would be on the other in terms of the issue of intervention and being engaged in world affairs. Um, so I, I think Trump ha- is, is, is hyper-cautious. I think that, that John Bolton will... He sees no problem. What's interesting is... 
a nation's power in the world is really not just a function of, of its militaries. It's a function of what people think it will be in 20 years. Power is a function of future expectations. A stock value is a function of its future expectations. If you see the United States rising and becoming more in control of its situation and helping to help the world move into better, you, you, the world can can look at that as a positive. So you, know, you look at what, what, what I think Bolton will do to either wreck or help that. I think Obama with the Iran deal, with other kinds of things, was trying to sort of move the needle on certain issues in the world so that the rest of the world saw America making a positive difference to the global situation. And that was contributing to our sense of power, and it was re-contributing a mystique that I think we used to have before the Iraq war and Iraq invasion when we began to show military limits and then we showed economic limits. When you show limits, other nations quickly know, your allies quickly know you can't be with them on their dark days and enemies move their agendas. That's right. the void that we're in today. Right. And so the question is, does John Bolton's kind of pugnaciousness and this tendency to want to, you know, preemptively strike North Korea, which he's advocated so many times, or to encourage Israel to preemptively strike uh, Iran in a dramatic way and kind of help tease out uh, a Saudi-Iranian war throughout the region. Those are some of the things that, that John Bolton has been about. Does that help us or hurt us? In my view, it hurts us dramatically because it makes us look much smaller, much lesser leveraged, and our allies don't trust us. That's that's what we're walking into with the transfer of H.R. McMaster to John Bolton. Who, who, and and to state the obvious, it's not like H.R. McMaster is like an Obama-type foreign policy No, person. no, no. He was all for a bloody nose with <laughs> right. North Korea. Right, right, There right. is no, I mean, the, the real answer on North Korea is we are likely, I mean, I don't know where it's going, but if we get out of this, we are likely to do some form of what we've always done in the past. It's pretty disappointing as there's not a lot of good answers. They are holding hostages two to three million people in the regions, Americans, South Koreans, Chinese, and others. And we have find, been finding soft ways to pay off their extortion demands. It's an extortionist country. And, and at some point, it will fail. It will fall of its own weight and gravity. But we don't know when that is. So it's always cheaper to pay off the bad guys in this particular case. And people find that morally repugnant to hear. Now, maybe I'm well, too much of a I realist. Don't, I but, don't think they just yeah, find it morally yeah, repugnant. Yeah. I think they. I think it offends a lot of people's desire for dominance. Mm -hmm. Because you, want, you don't want to... Because, you know... Paying someone off, right? You know, giving them some sub subsidies to to not cross whatever lines, that feels weak. And so I don't think yes. I, I think in in, in that's a, you know we that's have a, a good insight. We have we yeah. have a mutual friend Eli Lake who yeah. <laughs> who is 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 a is a wonderful person, but totally benighted um, as a as <laughs> as, as in his thinking. Of, that's a little harsh. He we both disagree. I think in a lot of ways with with things uh eli writes um yeah. i have a funny eli lake story though well, well then we definitely we definitely <laughs> have to tell that story um but a lot of people who are in eli's uh you know kind of camp of foreign policy thinking there is always a lot of talk about the suffering in north korea which is right. real mm -hmm. which is very real it's it it is a it really is a stalinist type state yes uh on in Iran, there are obviously lots of terrible things about the Iranian regime, uh, and opposition to deal making with both of those countries is often portrayed as a a moral failing of not of not standing on principled grounds and so forth about a a a moral foreign policy. Blah 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 blah. I think that that is, in most cases, a maybe not a a a willful dodge, but I don't think it's. I think what really drives that is that a certain kind of hawkish foreign policy thinker wants dominance, and if you dominate someone, you don't have to give them things to do do what you want. Um, but you can yeah. flip both ways on that. So so Eli, who is a formidable intellectual brain. I enjoy him. I obviously disagree with a lot of his views, but I really love his writing and I find it useful and constructive to deal with it. He's a serious guy. 
I think that what you share about this issue of dominance or a value thing, they're, they're similar because what is neoconservatism really about? I used to compare them. I mean, nobody remembers the Borg anymore in Star Trek, but oh, I do. I'm old. You know, the yeah. Borg, that those are the neocons. The yeah. Borg are the assimilationists. You either assimilate or you're annihilated. I mean, so you either, the Borg come along and turn everyone to look just like them. That's what the neocons want. They want Iraq and the people there or in Africa or anywhere we may be involved to just be become like American, become, become understand American values. It is the export of democracy in their version and, and values. And it's in some ways it's laudable, but it's a messianic vision. And it does involve power. It does involve subjugation of power. And then the redesign, if you will, of that nation's DNA. And it is of the belief that, and this was part of what Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History, was about was that reaching a certain point in history where the liberal order had taken care, taken, gotten to a point that all other nations to just survive would have to become like us. And, and that's what right. the neoconservatism ilk was about. They thought perhaps gravity was just going to get them there. But I think many of the militant neocons looked at delivering democracy at the end of the gun history or by invasion. Right. Was, was that right. was about. And they right. have a hard time walking away from that. I come from. Uh, a Nixonian uh, realist school that, that looks at world as much more harsh and that you have to make choices and America doesn't have unlimited power. If we did have unlimited power and unlimited success, fine, but we don't. And one of the big things is the world didn't know we didn't until the Iraq war. Right. People have to understand that. What happened in the Iraq war? Um, if you, you could go to England, you could go to Germany, you could go to the most developed places in the world, Japan. Then you could go to the poorest places in the world, Bangladesh or Nepal. Everyone said the same thing. America had no limits. America could create itself a new opportunity, get itself out of any problem. They saw no limits. And so the Iraq war and how it demonstrated our inability uh, at that time to arm our soldiers or to take on conflict elsewhere. And then you led from that through a series of economic constraints and costs and then to the economic crisis. We managed to show during the Bush administration incredible limits in our capacity to affect change. And that's where the world pivoted. That's what that is going to be the point in the history books in the future when American dominance or the perception of it ended because right. of showing those limits. And that was in part driven by what the neoconservatives had had launched uh, and the recklessness that I think many of them brought to this equation, where they saw unlimited American power and they were they were uh, they were immune to the to the reality that. There are limits on what we can do in the world, and you have to make hard choices, and you have to try to invest in those things that redound back, that give you the ability to do something good the next day. For them, you know, I used to talk to Richard Holbrook about this all the time, the late Richard Holbrook, and and I wrote uh, a piece about Holbrook once, and I said, you know, he was the Democrats' Machiavelli or the Democrats' amoral man, and his wife, Katie Martin, was pretty upset with me because she thought it was sort of immoral. She right. saw him as deeply right. moral. I saw he's amoral. He's a guy who would deal with the devil to get to good ends. And Which his, he sort of did in, in, in Yugoslavia. With, with Yugoslavia and, and many yeah. things. And, and you know, my, my friends on the global justice left, and I have many of them there, I often say, you've got to pick your battles. You've, you can't just go in by heart and think you're going to win. You'll get savaged. You have to have a playbook. You have to know which battles to win. That's what realism tries to bring to the equation uh, at the time. And that was the tension between the Brent Scowcroft, Chuck Hagel uh, type Republicans, George Voinovich and others at that time in the Bolton battle versus the Paul Wolfowitzes and Rumsfelds and Bill Crystals and others that were uh, uh, engaged in the Iraq war debate. That is exactly what that debate was when John Bolton was being debated. And he lost in that in, at that time. He didn't get confirmed because the Republicans couldn't pull their act together. That was sort of the interesting moment. And, and But the key yeah. there is that, that the, the wing of the Republican Party that basically did him in at the time and was sort of what you had is you know you basically total opposition from democrats but who who were not in power in congress and well and the, almost almost not i mean there were there were I, I i will i will give you a a, a little bit of a scoop okay at the beginning barack right. obama was not necessarily against Bolton at the beginning. And there was never a vote for that, but right, right. we had to push Obama hard. And it wasn't until the video appeared where John Bolton was talking about 
losing nine floors out of the UN did did Obama make his vote a no vote? And then now, you had Feingold, ask, the, who believed that strongly that the that the U.S. president, president should, should have a seat. So Feingold was on the Foreign Relations Committee. If we had lost either Obama or right. Feingold, we would have had no chance. And then on the Sunday shows, I'll never forget. Uh, uh, you'd well, have wait, people. Wait, wait, yeah, wait, wait. I mean, go just, back to Obama. the Democrats so, were constantly declaring defeat, and if they're declaring defeat, how are you going to get a Republican to basically drop out? No, that was I, the biggest I, problem. So with Obama, I, now there's a lot of things about it. One is one is Obama, before he became president, during his presidency, a very cautious person. One of the be- one of the great things about him. One of the one of the one of the less than great things about him. Also, an institutionalist. At, at, so, in 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 that case, I would think political caution that he. I mean, he's already thinking about running for president, um, and president should get to. Within you know within within reason, president right. gets to nom you know nominate who he wants. So give us a sense. This is interesting. What was what was his resistance to opposing Bolton? I think at that time, not knowing but suspecting, he was thinking of a presidential run. And of course, we had a mutual colleague from New America. Um, well, you, I always considered you part of the New America family. For those of you who don't know, I was very involved with the building and launch of New America. And Karen Cornblue was with us, who later became his his policy director, and had a, a good number of other people that I knew from the Tom Daschle franchise that had become part of the Barack Obama franchise. Like a lot of them, over, almost all like of, all what, of them. Like, yeah. Like so when Daschle left, so I had experience. So, so so Barack Obama was really trying to do good, earnest things. You know, he wanted. To, uh, I remember uh, he wanted to work with John McCain on campaign finance reform issues. He wanted to work. You know, he was trying to do this. So he was trying not to be obstinate. And see, at this point, what people don't remember is that George Bush had not really lost on anything. In fact, he'd revitalized his, his position by getting Sam Alito through the Supreme Court and and demonstrate people that he was not, in fact, weak along the way. And, um. The Republicans weren't really dividing on on anyone. And so no one saw, very few people saw the Bolton battle as something that could be easily picked and won. I think a few of us, I think you were one, there were very few people who saw how valuable this could be. And then there was a network of great bloggers. There were uh, folks within uh, Citizens for Global Solutions and Council for Livable World and the Open Society Institute and other folks that got involved in this who did an outstanding job of creating a network of activists, but they were all running against the stream. And I have to say, there were a lot of people involved in this in this process. But at that time, no one thought they could beat John Bolton. And so when you're Barack Obama and talking to his staff and team, they were not necessarily saying to him, this is where you should make your mark, because no one saw it as one they would lose. Right. I have right. to tell you, Dick Durbin, and I, and I got Dick Durbin to issue through uh, my blog and your blog, an apology, because he'd gone on a Sunday morning show and said we were going to lose, that the Democrats were going to lose, the opponents of Bolton were going to lose, that they liked to win, but they didn't control the numbers. And other leaders like Pat Leahy, Bill Richardson, who wasn't in Congress, but they had these people out there, out there saying this. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to them and I said, you know, I'm working very, very hard to convince Lisa Murkowski or Lamar Alexander or Chuck Hagel or Lincoln Chafee or George Voinovich to yeah. kind of look at the equities that the country has. And what signals this sends and try and move them. And, and what you're saying on TV is running right over us. And so Durbin actually stood up to that and said, you know, I was wrong and you were right. And he issued a, a statement, which was quite, quite generous. But that was the environment. And so when you're on Obama's team and you are thinking of future, do you want to come in as somebody who's just obstinate, who's just not doing that? The fact that Russ Feingold saw John Bolton as such a problem and came over removed some of if if we hadn't gotten Feingold I think we would not have gotten Obama uh is the truth and and the when when Feingold came in and made clear his opposition to John Bolton it it narrowed that window um that Obama would have had and then when Obama saw the tape which was played for him in his office then he came to be a no but the fact is we had to work it and that was mm-hmm. interesting it was not a knee-jerk opposition from the very beginning like many other Democrats so okay so 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 you have Eventually, there was opposition from a number of moderate slash realist Republicans right. in the Senate, and a lot of people on the outside who and and this is something I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, when they hear about Brent Scowcroft, you know, Scowcroft, Scowcroft isn't isn't like you know uh, plowshares, you know, no, I mean, he, no, he's a uh, hardcore realist. Yeah, yeah. and a lot no, of yeah. a lot of a lot of stuff that happened during the Cold War that you know, 
uh, nasty stuff, right? I mean, you know, uh, so those people, but those people opposed Bolton. But let's, I want to bring this up to today. So on Monday, what will be yesterday when, when this uh, episode is released, Bolton will not be an advisor, someone high up in the, in the sort of the org chart chain, especially in this presidency where the uh, people, you know, the cabinet secretaries, possibly right. with, the, with the exception of, of Mattis at the Pentagon, are almost afterthoughts in a lot of ways. Mm. He will be the person controlling decision-making decision-making on foreign policy right. full stop that's what the national security advisor does right and and especially when you have a president who is impressionable impulsive very unlettered when it comes to so what do we expect what what is we're, so we're some looking, of the yeah. things i expect and and i have to say in all the things i'm about to say i hope i'm wrong so, but the things I expect are some trends to continue that began before Trump came into the White House. The National Security Council has become its own agent, its own engine for decision making, and more and more the locus of real power. Whereas it used to be within the departments, you'd have State the Department, Department of Defense, Defense Department. Department of State, you'd have your intelligence agencies that had more incumbent authority, more ability to do things. But during the Obama period, a lot of that power, Trump has 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 increased the rate at which that power is is. Uh, centered around him and in the White House and the NSC staff. So I suspect that Bolton will continue to disembowel the agencies, bring people over and kind of own that process. Um, there are some very good people that H.R. McMaster brought over. Who are uh, some of those people? Let's talk. Uh, I'll, I don't I'll think mention people... two that I think are superb and, you know, not everyone shares my view, but but you know when you you can't you can't work with all that you want. But there there too. Fiona Hill uh, was at Brookings, probably one of the world's leading experts on Vladimir Putin. His flaws, warts. What a monstrous person he is. He and Angela Stent, uh, an, uh, an academic at Georgetown, are probably the two leading women uh, in the nation on Russia. And uh, it's been remarkable that despite Trump's Russia hugging and uh, and his. Uh, obsequiousness toward Vladimir Putin, that Fiona Hill has been on that National Security Council staff keeping her head down, but doing excellent work. Then Nadia Shadlow, who who used to be with the John Olin Foundation, um, is someone that many of us have known, just an outstanding, solid, smart thinker. What is her brief? What is her well, Right what now, is her she's area? Deputy National Security Advisor. So, so H.R. McMaster, Rachel, she wrote the President's National Security Strategy. I have to say there's little resemblance between the very relatively conventional, but pretty smartly written National Security Strategy of the Trump administration and what Trump himself has done. But nonetheless... Um, it was an okay piece of work and, and remarkable that it could be done in this administration, in my view. And Nadia Shadlow did that. She's solid. She conveys people who know her have some confidence in her. It's sort of um, – it's not at the level of Mattis, but when you meet people like that, they have confidence here. Then, So I don't know whether they will stay or go. I suspect it's going to be hard for them to stay given the people that I think that John Bolton will bring in. I suspect you'll begin to hear names like Fred Flights, who used to be uh, working with him closely at the State Department. It was somebody who had really engineered a lot of the cross-agency partnership so that there was John Bolton and David Addington and kind of the Dick Cheney wing versus others that were right. rivals. Right. Um, so I suspect I mean, you'll wouldn't have it almost be even under a normal national security advisor? It would be not at all unexpected that over time you bring in a new deputy – that's not like we're going to bring in a new something. deputy. Yeah. But the point is, you know, the, the, here the question is: Do you bring in someone who balances out your pugnacious nationalist views and has smart, informed views on Russia? Who has smart views on principled American engagement in the world? Who doesn't want to slam all of our allies against the wall? I mean, do you have someone like that, or do you bring someone in who I take reflects? It that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, I mean, who reflects your own biases right, and things? Right, and, right. and so we're going to get a test. I think Bolton is going to bring in people who are um, fringe national security people, and we'll see whether that happens or not. I also suspect that Tom Bossert, not everybody's favorite guy, but I think he's very professional, very solid, very good as the president's homeland, homeland security, security advisor. advisor right. I think he's going to have a civil war with John Bolton. Uh, we don't often talk about that, but Bossert is young, smart, um, and and has navigated his way thus far without a lot of drama. So he's very capable, so I suspect. And then you've got Jim Mattis, who's the last guy standing of what people thought was a pretty good national security team. We also said, oh, we don't, you know, Trump's crazy, but don't worry, there's a good national security team. 
guess what? There's gone and there's one guy left. Right. And and so uh, I suspect there's going to be a pretend love fest between Madison Bolton. Which it they've disappear. already started with that It, it will disappear. It's totally stupid. Right. I mean, right, there's right. No, not two more deeply different people in the country. I mean, you know, people like Jim Mattis hang out on the side, you know, uh, you know, you know, in their in their in their weekends with people like Chuck Hagel, right? So, so you know, former Secretary of Defense, former Senator, uh, but a Secretary of Defense during Obama time. He, right, this right. is not. You're not going to see John Bolton and Jim Mattis hanging out uh, over over a burger somewhere. So let me. When you talk about Tom Bossert and and Jim Mattis, the 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 taxonomy you're talking about is the difference between people who. Probably a lot of our listeners would 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 find too hawkish, too conservative, but are sort of, for lack of a better word, uh, mainstream professional yes. conservative. They are sane. Hands. They are principled. They believe in America's principled engagement in the world. They do not want to toss out NATO. They do not want to destroy the United Nations. They do not want to. Do this. They may be, even though, uh, as you said, they may, they they, they are not uh, people who believe necessarily in in every effort of of you know transnational do goodism. Although right. I have to say that I know that in, you know May 9th um, is one of the big anniversaries of uh, PEPFAR uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, under George W. Bush, and so a lot of those this conservative is pro- program in Africa, program in Africa, AIDS, HIV, AIDS, and yeah, so. and so Mark Dibel, who was our global, so there are a number of people coming together with with President Bush and others, and I think that's going to be an interesting moment to remind some of those pugnacious nationalists in the Trump administration we did good in the world even under a controversial Republican president who who at that time was the most unilateral we saw in the world. There were no, nonetheless these incredible moments of generosity and bridge building with the rest of the world. And I think that's going to be an important moment. You should do a show on that and, and, and remind people it's May 9th. And okay. so I think that the... Um, that that you're right. Many of your listeners will not like a lot of these characters, but the fact is, you got you have the cards that that you have. The question is, who takes you easily into tripping into war and conflict, or the uh, uh, tripping the United States into terrible and worse circumstances? And who gives you a chance of getting through this mess? Right. And that's what we're talking about. And that's why the personalities matter more in this in this time than they usually do. So let's okay. So the the there are three what I would say three obvious hotspots danger zones that that we are looking at right now. One is Iran and possibly tossing out the the nuclear deal. There you have the 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 Saudi-Iran regional right, all that kind of stuff that is happening in the Middle East. You have the situation in North Korea, which is, which is seemed extremely bad and is maybe backed now to only very, very bad uh, because they're going to at least have a conversation. And then you have the situation with Russia where you have, on the one hand, very real questions about what the relationship is between our president and the president of of of, of Russia. You also have it. So you've got a chumminess, but you also have a Russia, which I think for a variety of reasons is being intentionally provocative on various on various fronts. So let's think concretely over the next 12 months. What should we be concerned about will happen lo- have our eyes out under Bolton, John Bolton basically running U.S. foreign policy now, what might happen on each of those three fronts? Wow. So I guess let's start with Korea. So Korea, China isn't going to let that blow up one way or another. China will, if we were to do something to precipitate a hot conflict China will quickly throw its muscle and weight behind that. That conflict will end. I don't see a way in which 
we go easily into a hot. I used to disagree. I mean, I, I, uh, a few months ago, I felt differently. But I think Kim Jong Un has shown himself to be shrewd. He's put himself into a posture to be to, to appear to be prostrate to some degree. Uh, he has charmed and put distance, in my view, between South Korea and the United States, and he's created anxiety with Japan. Remember, Abe is meeting uh, Trump down in Mar-a-Lago on April 18th and 19th, and so there's concern out there. And I just think that this is one area where Mattis is going to control more and the Chinese are going to control more. So I might have three months ago said, wow, I worry about this spinning out of control. I have less worry about North Korea right now just because the players there are all muscling up and I think creating uh, conditions that prevent Donald Trump's rashness from proceeding with that. So I would take, I don't want to take, take it entirely off the table, but the right. chances of a hot conflict there in my mind have, have dissipated. What was your second was? Well, the second's Iran. So Iran, we're going to walk away from the deal uh, in May, I think. And John Bolton is going to be the, uh, the cherry on the, on, the, on the cake on that. I don't know what the Iranians will do. Here's what I suspect will do, which is bad for the United States, but it's not going to lead to this, is that, is that the Iranians stay and maintain the deal with with Europe right. and with the Russians and Chinese with which they negotiated this deal. This was so it's a more like we're deal. out of the deal. As we're out of there. We become the isolated. Right. They don't. The question is, why would they do that? Well, in the short term, they do it to embarrass the United States and put the United States in an awkward position. And also there is business activity going on between much of the rest of the world. The problem is that the Iranians really do want to grow their economy, have economic investment. And they know from these protests that are going on that they've got to deliver a different course and set of opportunities for their people. The downside of the strategy I just talked about is that doesn't necessarily mean that Europe, which is not full of robust uh, uh, investment, China maybe more so, are going to come in and solve Iran's economic problems. So this lingers out there as an exploitable issue. And at some point, a populist or someone who wants to blame the United States, as Iran has been so good at doing for so long, could come back and say, now is the time. Europe has failed to deliver. Our friends in Russia and China are not changing our course. We need to get back into um, uh, our own course, taking care of our own case, screw the United States, and let's rebuild our peaceful use nuclear program, which of course is their non-peaceful use nuclear program. I don't think that will happen right away. I think it'll take a while to perk, but it, it, it is an incredible lost opportunity, and eventually it puts us back on a collision course with Iran uh, if things stay as they are in the region. You've got Russia. Russia, I think, is, is, is malicious in a lot of parts of the world, and we don't have a strategy for dealing with it. It's very clear in Syria. It's also clear I worry about countries that, like Moldova, the, the, the Baltics. Um, Ukraine continues to be a mess, of course, but it's the, the Baltics and NATO countries, which takes us into Syria, which you didn't add, but the Syria-Russia component is worrisome well, in well that- also where these two things come well, together. Well, and it's where Turkey is. And so right. we've, we've kind of walked back on our promises to Kurds, our commitment to Kurds who would really save the day for us in ISIS and a lot of these places. So we are in a period of gutting the Kurds yet again, robbing them of uh, aspirations that we had and are becoming a trivial player in the region. The danger for us is that Turkey is becoming more deeply involved in northern Iraq and in Syria directly with Russia, directly with Syrians, directly with Iraqis who don't want the Turks in Iraq. And so this threatens to blow up at some point, and Turkey is a NATO member nation. You just don't know where it is. I think it's one of those those lurking potential disasters out there that very few of us are talking or thinking about because it's not on the front page, but it's very worrisome. And the other one that we're not talking about, which I think is, I put way, way up, is what Donald Trump is doing with Pakistan right now. So that Pakistan, which we're walking away from in terms of aid, contact, support, you know, we can support Sisi in Egypt and congratulate him on his alleged victory, 97%, arm them, do this, that's and, you know, and that's in a realist thing. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, and just to be clear, the Brent Scowcrofts of the world would, would sign off and say that's the right thing to do. Turkey, well, I'm sorry, Pakistan has a real thing. That's where AQ Khan came from or, and is. AQ Khan, one of the world's worst you know, nuclear proliferators. Uh, and and I've talked with several former presidents of Pakistan, and what you see technologically happening is one of the ways 
where Pakistan's nuclear systems were secure is that the warheads themselves and the launch vehicles were always separate. But technology is taking them and bringing them closer uh, uh, together. So let's back so, up. So that is a worrisome thing. What that, is Donald Trump doing? Because th- this is totally off, certainly off the front pages. Yeah. Is he just walking away? Cutting what is aid, he doing? walking okay. away. And Pakistan, as as my colleague Jeff Goldberg you know, had a cover story in the Atlantic once called is the ally from hell. There is no neat way. You can't ever feel comfortable with Pakistan and they will be trying to screw you. At the same time, you can never walk away and you have to have uh, an alliance of some sort with some parts of Pakistan. To walk away from Pakistan not only assures defeat in Afghanistan, but it also ensures a kind of buildup of tensions again between India and Pakistan. And this, I think, for all the simulations I've been involved with for years with the intelligence establishment and the Department of Defense, have always looked and said our real blind spot in national security, you know, future f- uh, fractions, future t- uh, uh, tectonic spark points is, is Pakistan-India and that whole region. That's why we're so deeply engaged. But we're we're basically withdrawing and pulling out with little concern. You know, none of us are looking at it, but it is the thing that so I think lurks really out there. His, so his in the next, you talk about the next 12 months, yeah. I, 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 um, I would put money on the fact that one way or another, Pakistan becomes a blaring red light in the next year. That's unfortunate. Hmm. So, okay, here, here, last question I want, I want to, I want to ask you. Um, and then I have to tell you my Eli Lake story. Yes, yes, we have to get to that. It's a good one. I'm, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. So, where do I want to ask you what the right way to think about Russia is in the in the short and medium term, not simply about the domestic issue that Russia has become and scandal and uh, special prosecutor and stuff like that. To me. Russia is essentially a regional power at this point. Obviously, it is a regional power with a huge nuclear stockpile. Um, but at a, but at the end of the day, uh, military, diplomatic power, so on and so forth, is driven by economic power and economic scale. Um, and yet, obviously, a lot of people, for very good reasons, are very, in the United States now, are very... Uh, concerned about Russia and the threat of Russia and tampering on our elections and so on and so forth. <clears throat> but in many ways, this is a regional power, right? Uh, which nonetheless has us sort of, you know, back on our heels uh, in, in Eastern Europe, certainly in, in Syria and, and Iran. Uh, how do we, how do we deal with and, get along with Russia because Russia is not mm-hmm. going to disappear no. and and certain and Vladimir Putin does not s- look to be disappearing anytime soon and you know it's hard for me to get too yeah. uh, bent out of shape when you see you're, their, you're yeah. describing this kind of netherworld where Russia sort of exists you know partly important partly unimportant you know partly an annoying nuisance partly not a big deal this is what is driving Vladimir Putin crazy So Vladimir Putin and the people that support him believe that Russia has suffered humiliation after humiliation from the rest, being discounted, not taken seriously. One of his big demands for a long time is he wanted the same kind of strategic and economic dialogue bilateral that the United States had with China, but he wanted that with Russia. And we refused to give it. Barack Obama just refused. So so there there is a a, a chip on the shoulder – you sort of start Posture. to understand why he gets along with Donald Trump. Right, right. So, no, th- this is exactly right. And so he is Ronald Reagan. He's mourning in Moscow. He's reminding Russia they're flexing their muscles. They're using the assets they have. And they and they engage in brinksmanship in ways that most modern developed countries don't do. And we've seen it happen for a long time. You know, when you're cutting off uh, uh, energy to Ukraine, when you're cutting off gas flows and you're willing to do that and you're you're engaged in sort of a brinksmanship. He's been willing to use power and deploy power as a middleweight country in ways the United States was not and has not as a nation that has great linkages. What's interesting is to ask yourself then with Donald Trump, with what he's doing with with China on tariffs and other countries on tariffs, he's being caving kind of Putin-like, Putin-like yeah, you know, yeah. in that for better or for worse. But but what is missing on Russia and what we had, I think, during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration and, and the Obama administration was a kind of uh, half in, half out 
uh, strategy with Russia. We didn't want to give them too much. We wanted to push them here. We really we knew we have to deal with them as a global strategic sta- stakeholder. They are on the permanent five of the United Nations. They do hold nuclear stockpiles, and they are important in many many ways. But but we have not really we've we've been pushing recognition of various uh, uh, you know nations in the Balkans that they were opposed to that they wanted to process and so we've just kind of been pushing for our way pushing for our way pushing over our way and the Russians have been irritated by it and this is their point where they're coming back and I used to say and I asked Richard Haas the president of the Council on Foreign Relations when he was a Republican stalwart working in the Bush administration about about NATO I think it was a huge mistake not to get Russia into NATO as a NATO member way back. When. He wrote a white paper for the administration. It's hard way to back imagine when. now. No, it's hard to yeah, imagine that yeah. now. But then, what a smart move it would have been. You would because I I wrote at the time. I did not know that Haas was the author of the white paper in the Bush administration that advocated the same thing. That the point is, if you didn't have that, and this is a point when Russia was a basket case, when Russia could barely move and survive, and no one took it seriously. And you're talking in the early '90s. That's right. Yeah. But the point is, at that point, you needed to find a pathway not to to create a, a, a collective interest and not one where you get back to an us versus them dynamic because Russia was not going to be permanently a basket case. Let me ask and you, and we got into held, that dynamic. So we're back have, in the dynamic. Would that have held? Like let's say yes. in 1991, uh, you put some aid on the table, you, you, you oh, bring I, Russia into NATO. Is there a trajectory where Russia would still be in NATO? And I, that was... You and I might argue about this. No, I, I don't would, know. I, I just, would say it seems yes. Hard to imagine I thought to a me, lot yeah. about it, about what dynamics. You know, when you come back to talking about trust and fear, yep. what do you, yep. what do you, what, what do, what do you build when you have those relationships? What integration do you get? What sorts of positive, and, that you, you know, constructive the, yeah. stakeholders do you get? Where, do, where does that happen? Now, maybe I'm naive in this, and I, and I admit. But on the other hand, what has happened is that the narrative of humiliation and the narrative of being disregarded by much of the rest of the world and the sense that this muscularity that Vladimir Putin has bought around the world and what he's done is to kind of screw over the Americans in their own election system and show what he can do around the world through cyber, through other sorts right. of shenanigans. This has built his po- – I mean, he's genuinely popular in Russia. No, that's and, the thing. And, Even and, though and, it's not really a free election, right, he could right. probably win and a free I, election. And I, and I think that that, that, that – I, I totally agree. And I think that that – um, that is part of the story. I don't know for sure that it would have been preempted by this side, but I think it was an alternative story. It was an interesting missed opportunity. But, but I, I, I think that we're at a point where with Russia, if we don't find a strategy to make them pay a cost for various things and then develop a Russia strategy for 10 years from now, 20 years from now, where we want to be with this country, then the United States continues to shrink metaphorically in terms of our leverage in global affairs. They don't necessarily rise, but you end up with an anarchic world with ad hoc allies stuck in between, and the world is just messier, nastier, and more dangerous. So we don't get to anyone dominating. We get to no one dominating it, and, and in that particular case... It is, it is much more dangerous for us. The privileges and prestige and unique ways in which America has been able to be America end in right. that situation. And that's what Russia wants. You know, I have the, the – since I've been associated myself a lot with the sort of the Russia-Trump story, it, it sort of – it has sort of eclipsed this. But the thing that I have always been very, um, very – uh, I have always thought the Russia hawks were very misguided in creating a situation where our policy is we and NATO are going to be the great, the armed great power right up to your border. Right. Now, that may be helpful and just for Ukraine, just in the sense of like they don't want to be under – Ukraine does not want to be redominated. By a a a reascendant Russia, uh, Georgia doesn't want to, so on and so forth. But for a a country with Russia's history and resources, if you want to be the armed great power right up to their national border, you are not going to have a good relationship. That's and, right. and you need to understand that. And, and maybe it doesn't you, that's matter it or not what, what but, constitution you have, what values you want to promulgate, what people want for themselves. They're geographic realities which are complex and nasty. And and you're right. And this is why this us versus them dynamic, given the decisions made after the end of the Cold War, almost promised that we would be back at this rivalry again. 
they portended that we would have a kind of geostrategic competition again because of going up so close uh, to these borders and Russia and a Russian politician coming in. And there were people before Putin, remember, that it was highly nationalistic. I remember being in Japan over those northern islands, over mm-hmm, you know various mm-hmm. things that, that, that became, you know, we didn't report it much, but inside Russia, right, this big deep nationalism about its territory and expansion and its spheres of influence. And you could feel it brewing as the oligarchs were becoming wealthier and wealthier, but the average Russian was also doing better in those circumstances. So, so- all right, we're 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 yeah. we're, we're going to finish up this episode, right. but we have an Eli Lake story. No, no, it's, it's really a Jan, it was really a John Bolton and Eli Lake. Story, and okay. It's kind of nice, but you know, given how much, I mean, I probably written more on John Bolton than any human being alive, right? right. Uh, even though it was 12, 13 years ago, but it was twenty one months every day. I remember Ezra Klein saying it's such a sad thing that Steve Clemens took his great blog and became monomaniacally obsessed <laughs> with John Bolton. He later corrected that and said he really showed how to how to do it. But yeah. I mean, it was I was it was Bolton every day, yeah. every moment. Uh, and but there was a point where some people had contacted me both on Facebook and and by email, asking me to join this John Bolton Friendship Club, and <laughs> and it was sort of this website that, that John like Bolton had, had identified Korea. people that he wanted to have, yeah. and it was a it was a John Bolton uh, website about John Bolton speeches, and it kind of looked like a pack thing. Okay, and you would click on a link and you would get in and become part of this club of people around John Bolton. I didn't click on the link, but and I was also approached. So it's like Facebook. the dollar dollar shave club for John Bolton, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so I, I I called AEI. I called John Bolton's office, talked to his, and I said, "Look, I know that I'm magnanimous, and I've always wanted to interview John Bolton, but I said you guys wouldn't invite me into a friendship thing like of a pre- password protected website with Ambassador Bolton, would you?" And she was very clear. She says, "Well, I don't think so, Steve. I don't think we're there yet." Uh, and and what this ended up being, and I, I passed off all the information I had to uh, AEI, and that I think went to the FBI. And Eli Lake did a great story on this, uh, but it ended up being a bunch of Iranian hackers <laughs> who got out, outed. Where the Iranian hackers <laughs> are hilarious. trying to reach national security people, and the way they got outed or caught, and Eli did a brilliant job in this story. David Sanger did a follow up piece in the New York Times, was because they had mistakenly thought that I would be a pal of John Bolton. So uh, anyway, there's, there's so, so, Eli Lake so, did a great story so on it. It was poor, very funny. We we're all we we're all intelligence amused. work yeah. by yeah. by. The, the Iranian yes. hackers. Right. Wait, no, wait. What era, like what, what time frame is it's this? It's just a couple of years ago. A few years oh, so ago. recently. Yeah. yeah, recently. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I totally missed that. I totally missed that. So. Um, well, uh, that, that, is a good, that is a good Eli Lake story. Good way to um, end, end Yeah, totally, totally. I try to be very magnanimous and high road. And I, you, so, you, oh, and then you, Ambassador Bolton, John Bolton, on his Twitter feed, and it's still there, paid thanks to me for letting him know and being upfront about the Iranian hackers and others. And so John Bolton actually thanks me in his Twitter feed. Wow, we gotta look we gotta look up that tweet, David. That's, yeah, well, let's put that in the show notes. Yeah, no, totally, totally, totally. This is a whole this is a whole uh uh, Iranian intelligence <laughs> operation that and, I and, and he'll be there. He'll be he'll have one full working day before this airs. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Steve Clemens, thank you so much for coming on the thank Josh you, Marshall Josh. podcast. Um, I've really I've really enjoyed this as as I always enjoy our our conversations. Now, be- before we go, I have to remind you that 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 uh, despite all that all that that uh, talk, this episode of the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's <laughs> Cold Brew, always iced coffee. I yeah. want another. Which, which yeah, it, <laughs> I want another. Got, it's got to line up somehow with John Bolton. But anyway, you know, you should you should really be drinking Grady's Cold Brew, and you should know that you can get twenty percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Steve Clements, thanks so much, and thank you for listening. Thank you. See you next week.